0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 253. Today we speak with Dr. Nelson Klosterman about natural law and two-kingdom theology. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 253. My name is Camden Busey. I have a great episode lined up today. Uh, We have a number of regulars and a great guest. Let me introduce to you our two regulars we have. First, Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringoes, New Jersey. He's working as stated supply at Knox Presbyterian Church in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Jeff. It's great to have you. Oh, yes. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to speak with you again. We're also delighted to welcome back to the program Jim Cassidy, who is pastor of Calvary OPC in Ringoes, New Jersey. Welcome back, Jim. It's good to speak with you again. As always, great to be here. It's been a whole... Number of 10 minutes since our last episode, Jim. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but,
0: uh, the wonders of recording and... It uh, and, uh, felt like a lifetime. Out. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, we're so excited today, not only to be back again uh, talking about some great topics in Reformed Theology, but especially to welcome back to Christ the Center. Uh, Our guest, Dr. Nelson Klosterman, who is Executive Director of Worldview Resources International. He also works as a translator on a number of different projects we'll speak about in just a minute. But welcome back, Dr. Klosterman. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, I'm
2: delighted to be back with you today.
0: Great. Well, we're really excited. Um, it's been quite some time. I think last time we had Dr. Klosterman on, it was part of our Christ and Culture series, and uh, he offered his insights and thoughts on a number of different questions and topics related to Christ and his relationship to culture. And we're going to be speaking about some of those same topics today, but following up on a new book, uh, Dr. Klosterman has a number of different contributions to this new title from Presbyterian and Reform publishers titled Kingdoms Apart. Uh, That's a great new book, and we're going to unpack that in a minute. But before we do so, I do want to give Dr. Klosterman an opportunity here uh, to speak about some of his translation work. Could you uh, let our listeners know a little bit about what you've been working on and and what's coming available?
2: Well, yeah, I'd like to thank you for that opportunity. Um, As you well know, when one gets into publishing and translating and writing, there's a time lag between when the manuscript gets finished and the book finally sees the light of day, and so I've got work that's been finished for a year or more that's now coming out this fall yet, this month. Lord willing, we hope to see uh, the publication, the appearance of Herman Boving's book, The Christian Family, which is being um, published by Christians Library Press, associated with Acton Institute. In addition, um, the volume you mentioned, Kingdoms Apart, is coming out later this month. In addition, my main, uh, the backbone of my translation work is a 23-volume commentary called Opening the Scriptures, and it's from Dutch to English, all this work is, by the way. And um, it's written by two Reformed ministers in the Netherlands. One's deceased, one is yet alive, and it carries through the trajectory, uh, hermeneutically and exegetically, of S.G. de Graaf. Perhaps your listeners may be familiar with Promise and Deliverance, a four-volume set which Graff uh, wrote and was translated by Evan Runner, H. Evan Runner, um, into English. And it's that same hermeneutical and, and exegetical uh, school that is now being uh, put out in terms of this set of commentaries. Two volumes coming out, we hope, this year, Genesis and Exodus. In addition, um, I'm uh, supervising a number of translation projects with Kuyper College and Acton Institute. One is Common Grace by Abraham Kuyper, a three-volume work. And the other is Pro Rega by Abraham Kuyper, another three-volume work. And uh, in addition, we have two anthologies that are in the works, one on Kuyper's view of the church, a number of essays collected in a volume, and Kuyper's view of education, specifically Christian education, a number of essays of his collected in a volume as well. In addition, here and there, now and then I get opportunities to translate chapters for fresh scripts or other volumes that my friends would like to uh, have some help with. So that's uh, that's my life right now.
0: Yeah, well, it's great, and we appreciate your work. Um, there's so many great things written in Dutch that still have, have yet to be translated to English, and uh, we're delighted that you uh, have the skill and ability and the desire uh, to to work through these translations because it's opening up a world of of new reading and opportunities for us people that can only read English. <laughs> yeah, so, thank you. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. And, of course, I'd like to mention uh, the website. Dr. Klosterman, I uh, mentioned, is Executive Director of Worldview Resources International. It's at worldviewresourcesinternational.com. And the blog, of course, uh, it's linked to from that page. You can find him and his writings uh, on cosmiceye.wordpress.com. So uh, there's a number of different resources where you can find Dr. Klosterman. And uh, uh, we'll get into uh, some of his work here, especially in this new title, uh, Kingdoms Apart, in just a minute. But before we do so, do we have any bits of news or information that we need to mention, Jim or Jeff, before we get started?
3: Uh, Jim, uh, do you want to mention the conference coming up uh, just in a few weeks at uh, Ringo's?
0: That'll actually be, I think, the time this comes out. So, oh, okay, but so but it's still late. worth mentioning. It's not mm. too late because people might get this on a Friday morning, and uh, and still make it up there to Ringo. So uh, tell okay. them about it, Jim.
3: Go ahead, Jim. Did we lose Jim? We might have lost him. Okay. <laughs> well, why
4: don't you say, Jeff?
3: <laughs> well, we want to try
4: to no, get. No, no, I'm that. sorry. I'm here. I had it on mute. Uh, my, <laughs> oh. my headset. I'm sorry. <laughs> Glad the rapture did not uh, happen. Yes. <laughs> so uh the conference is uh upcoming on October twenty seventh and twenty eighth, uh on Adam and the Bible. Hello? Yeah. Adam. Okay. And, the Bible. and uh, we we're gonna be having uh Doctors Poitress and Doctors uh Doctors Poitras and Tipton, and uh they're gonna be opening up the scriptures from both the old testament and the new testament to talk about the significance of the historical Adam.
0: Mm, that's such an important topic now. Um, and there have been many books and, and articles and suggestions made uh, just in the past year or two about the historical Adam. So I'm glad you're devoting some attention to that. Um, of course, they will attempt to record these things and provide them online uh, for people that aren't able to attend. Uh, so check that out at uh, calvary-amwell.org as well as reformedforum.org. Anything else we need to mention? Uh, yes,
3: a- I just wanted to mention the other conference, which is a week later. Yep. Uh, which is a Friday. Friday, evening, and Saturday, and that is the Princeton Conference on Reformed Theology. This year it will be held on the campus of Princeton Theological Seminary in the Miller Chapel, and the topic is sanctification, and the the two main guest speakers are Ian Hamilton and Derek Thomas.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, you two will be on hand for that, and uh, we hope to record Some interviews with those gentlemen and uh, make those available on reformedforum.org. A whole host of things coming up uh, in the fall. It's that time of year. And uh, stay tuned for what we have in store at reformedforum.org. And I should also mention, of course, you can visit us there at that website and uh, donate and pledge your support today. We are listener-supported, and we have been greatly encouraged recently by uh, your outpouring of support. Uh, but we encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org uh, to pledge your support today and help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. We want to thank everybody already for their support of everything we do here at Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, Dr. Klosterman, I was delighted to see this new title. Uh, Ryan McElhaney, I believe, is the editor of this book, Kingdoms Apart, which has been published by Presbyterian and Reformed Publishers. But you've written one article uh, and translated two and provided a forward to those two. But the first one here I think we want to start off with is the article or the chapter, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms in the Thought of Herman Bavinck. Um, I suppose I'll, I'll just ask you uh, right off the bat, um, why has Herman Bovink uh, come into this discussion, and why is there so much contention surrounding his views on Two Kingdoms and natural law?
2: Well, um, to be uh, to be frank with you, his name came up in light of uh, uh, a presentation and a speech given by David Van Drunen at the Bovink um uh, Conference a number of years ago in mm-hmm. Grand Rapids, Michigan, to which then I gave this uh, response, which has now been published as a chapter in this book. Earlier published in the Calvin Theological Journal. Um, both the names, uh, the names of both Herman Bavinck and Abram Kuyper, have been brought into this discussion, um, presumably as people who would be sympathetic with the um, the contemporary version of uh, Two Kingdoms and Natural Law, and both uh, people, Bobbink and Kuyper, have been adduced as sympathizers and as uh, people whose views would uh, correspond somewhat in large part, though not without difficulties, uh, correspond with the contemporary um, understanding of, of Two Kingdoms and Natural Law. So I, uh, I felt that it was necessary for my part Given this opportunity at the Bobbing Conference to um, myself, do some research and some investigation into uh, the thought and writing of Herman Bobbing, which most of which is inaccessible to English readers, and I discovered, of course, that uh, there was far more in the Herman Bobbing uh, yet untranslated than uh, than mm. we were given to understand in terms of the presentation. Mm that that's
0: how that was my point of entrance now one of the things suggested is that there's there's some possibly inconsistencies or maybe even some incoherent tensions in Bovink. um it's one thing to speak about a tension uh or some some different emphases he might be trying to hold together it's another to speak about inconsistencies what what is your take on this and and um how might you address whether or not there are two Bovinks on this subject for instance
2: well um let me pick up your last comment sure. and move backwards uh, to the beginning of your question. Um, in my chapter um, on the thought of Herman Bobbing, as an appendix or an addendum, I did raise the question: Were there really two Bobbings? And mm-hmm. I think that the premise or the claim that there may have been two Bobbings—one, um, one a more uh, devotional, pastoral, personal. Um, Highest kind of Bavink theologian, the other more a public, uh, culturally oriented, and socially aware Bavink. That that claim, I think, needs to be challenged significantly. Some of it arises from a mistranslation uh, on the part of uh, some authors of commentary by Bergkauer. I won't go into the details, I'll let the reader. Uh, The readers get those details in the book, but it's interesting that uh, my
1: conclusion
2: is that uh, though we can identify tensions in the thought of Bobbing, and by the way, tensions exist in the thinking of every great thinker and genius, including John Calvin and Mm. even Augustine and so on, so I'm not surprised that with Kuiper and Bobbing, one can identify tensions as well, but I think tensions is far different than incoherencies or contradictions or irreconcilable strands of thought. And so um, I think that that claim is based on a misunderstanding and mistranslation. I think it's based as well on um, limited attention to English-language sources without the privilege of reading uh, the whole Bavink, a comprehensive Bavink, um, most of whose writings still remain in the Dutch language. It may interest your readers to know that uh, Dr. James Eglinton has recently obtained his doctorate, I think, from the University of Edinburgh. I may be mistaken on that identification, but his dissertation picks up my discussion about the alleged two bobbings, and he goes into greater depth yet to demonstrate the the unwarranted claim that that is. And would like us to understand that though there be, be tensions, there's one overarching unified thought in Herman Bobbing's program.
0: Interesting. Now, I, I suppose before we go any further, we we should get some terms straight and some, some definitions. I think this can be helpful in the discussion. And whenever we talk about two-kingdom theology, it can be uh, confusing because there, there are a host of different uh, people and writers that might Formulate the doctrine in different ways. When you speak about two kingdom theology, and when you're addressing uh, two kingdom theology in particular, how would you define it? How would you uh, crystallize its principal concerns theologically? Just so that we understand what we're talking about specifically.
2: Well, my my use and preferred understanding of the term phrase two kingdoms relates to the two ways in which Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, rules in this age, within the the lives and the experience of believers. I think that um, we need to, in terms of two kingdoms, define it, first of all, Christocentrically, or uh, on the basis of Jesus Christ, as the incarnate Son of God, second person of the Trinity, We need to understand the two kingdoms in terms of his redemptive work and how that redemptive work comes to play out within the creation. And thirdly, I think we need to understand the two kingdoms then as the way or the ways in which Christ Jesus governs within his people. We need to understand that in terms of integration and unity, which integration and unity are found in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Um, that's my understanding. I don't believe that that is currently the understanding being defended in Toto
0: today. Okay. It is interesting. I mean, I've I've had conversations with, with other people, not necessarily people that have been published on the subject, but sometimes there's an understanding that two-kingdom theology is simply an articulation of uh, the separation of church and state. What's unfortunate, I think, about that definition is that there are or neo-Calvinists, neo kyperians a host of people that could articulate a distinction between the two, but yet would not be classified as two kingdom theology in most people's minds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So another, th- I think there
2: there lies some of the confusion because yeah. um, uh, it has been asserted that, and here's where Kuyper and Bobbing then get adduced and enlisted in service to the contemporary discussion of natural law and two kingdoms. But it's been asserted that that anyone then who pleads for and argues for distinction between church and state must thereby also be operating in terms of a separation mm. between church and state, or religion and and politics. And that's simply not the case in my judgment.
0: Mm. Another thing that, that is often spoken about, and you do mention here in the book Kingdoms Apart, I believe it's in your forward to the DeGraph pieces, I might be incorrect, is this idea of Christ as mediator. You know, you've already brought up how uh, we have to understand how Christ rules and governs, but um, one thing that seems to be at work in in the Reformed 2K approach that's being presented today uh, by Dr. Van Drunen, if I'm correct, is is this idea that Christ mediates uh, the common kingdom as creator but mediates uh, the spiritual kingdom or the church through um through his word, as as Redeemer. Is that correct? Is that is that a, a kernel of a definition here of the 2K we're speaking about?
2: Yes, I think those uh, those elements are uh, part and parcel of that view of the two kingdom that we're speaking about indeed, mm. yes.
0: Great. So with that in mind, I think we can we can proceed. I, I should let uh, Jeff or Jim, do you have any questions or comments before we start to speak about natural law in Herman Bovink and start to move down this road?
4: Boy, do I have questions. But, uh, you know, just I mean, in terms of um, my uh, getting clarification in my own mind, uh, getting it wrapped around uh, the debate and the different sides and all that. But I think I think probably better off if we um, let uh, Dr. Klosterman go ahead and unfold uh, natural law in Bovink and perhaps that might um, give us more food for uh, for for questions and yeah. such. Well, let me, can let me throw, start by can a, I throw a monkey oh, wrench ahead.
3: into the into the works. Sure, uh, if I may, <laughs> yeah, uh, Doctor Klosterman, uh, What is uh, uh, in your understanding? What what is the defect uh, of saying that Christ is mediator of creation uh, as the second person of the Trinity and mediator of the Church as uh, the God-man?
2: Um, a couple of observations about that. Um, first of all, if you've uh, ever heard about or read um, a rather recently translated volume entitled Concise Reformed oh, yeah, by uh, Will, uh, W. Phelema and Vikendron, you'll discover a helpful discussion about the term mediator of creation. Throughout the 30s and 40s in the Netherlands, there was a very significant and intense discussion of the right and propriety of this term, mediator of creation, because the word mediator presupposes opposition and the need for reconciliation and refereeing. So that when the term mediator of creation is employed, the suggestion is given that there are two parties here at variance with each other who need to be reconciled. On the one hand, God, and on the other hand, the creation. And hence, in theology, particularly in Reformed theology, the phrase mediator of creation is not an undisputed phrase. However, let's let's leave it, leave it there, because Calvin, I think, does use it. But here, then, secondly, is the um, equally serious problem, and that is that the terms mediator of creation and mediator of redemption come to live parallel lives. If I could summarize in one word the basic complaint and difficulty with the current construals of the issue, the one word I would use would be parallelism, whereas I believe that a better approach is what I'm calling integrationism. And the integrationism between Christ as mediator of redemption and mediator of creation, if we wish to continue using the terms, is located, that integration is located in his very incarnation and work as the incarnate redeemer. So in answer to your question, I think it's uh, it, it's part of the terminology mediator of creation, mediator of redemption is part of this um, separate but parallel construction that is I think, at the basis of many objections and complaints today.
0: Oh, that's really helpful. I I appreciate that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, well, with with that in mind, I I think um, that provides a really great platform for moving into this discussion specifically as it relates to Herman Bovink here. Um, One question here on natural law and Herman Bovink I'd I'd like to ask is, clearly Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli each formulated the doctrine of natural law, uh, but my question here, historically, is how did they use it?
2: First of all, I don't want to pretend to be an authority on the history of interpretation of these men, but I can give you my, my understanding sure. as, uh, at the hand of, uh, and at the tutelage of bovink. Um, and that understanding is that they used and taught natural law, undeniably so, without question. All right, I want to be clear on that. There is and there exists natural law, mm-hmm. but it is... Uh, in their hands, an instrument and a tool whereby God continues to order human society. God, note note the, the subject here, God continues to order human society through his providence and blessing in a way that allows the church to exist and to continue promulgating the gospel in this age until the return of Jesus Christ. As far as I can tell, At no point in the the theologies of these people, Calvin, Zwingli, others, was natural law used, apart from Scripture, apart from special revelation, as a means whereby to erect or invent a distinct morality or moral code. And the, I think, the contribution of Bavink, among others, is to remind us that natural law can be apprehended and properly used only in light of and in terms of the spectacles of Scripture, to use a good Calvinian metaphor, so that natural law does exist and it does contribute to the order of society by God's blessing, so that as a result, the outcome of that observation is all praise and glory to God and we do not thereby construct, say, a human or humanistic code of ethics that supposedly offers common ground in the world between Christians and non-Christians so we can get along. Now, that's related to this, of course, is the so-called doctrine of common grace. Natural law is a part, then, of God's blessing. I choose to use phrases like God's blessing, God's providence, God's... Um, beneficence, even in connection with uh maintaining this world and this creation as the arena for his ongoing
1: redemption
0: mm. that's really helpful actually um and of course it's it's related to um um not only common grace but questions such as what is the present function of human reason, what is man's ability, how do we relate that to total depravity um and you you, you spoke about a Canons of Dort uh, section on this regard, did you not?
2: Yes, in fact, I find this to be um, one of the greatly concealed, one of the loudest silences in the entire debate, and that has to do with our confession, the confession of the Canons of Dort, um, chapter 3, 4, paragraph 4. Mm-hmm. May I read it? Oh, please. Okay, it says in the Canons of Dort, there remain, however, in man since the fall, the glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of God of natural things and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior. Now, most commentators in this discussion, most commentators stop at that point, inciting the canons of Dort. However, right on the heels of that sentence, in the canons, is this sentence, but... So far is this understanding of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and to true conversion. I want to pause a moment. That's a very true statement that most people acknowledge in this debate. Common grace, natural light, etc. cannot save people. Amen. However, the canons go on to say, so far is it from being sufficient to bring him to saving knowledge that he, natural man, is incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil. Period. Another sentence. Nay, further, this understanding, such as it is, man in various ways, renders wholly polluted, W-H-O-L-L-Y, entirely polluted, and hinders in an unrighteousness, by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. Now, one of the important conclusions from this entire article has to be that the purpose of so-called common grace natural light etc is to hold people inexcusable before god and that purpose is just different quite different from serving as a basis for building a culture Serving as a basis for common um, common interaction. Now, I don't deny the common interaction, and I don't deny the culture. The issue has to do with the capacity for fallen man rightly to apprehend natural revelation, including natural law, and rightly to use it. And I believe I'm persuaded the canons of Dort deny the latter as well as the former.
3: Uh, Dr. Klosterman. Uh... Obviously, Bavink is wanting to, to, uh, in his theology, to exegete uh, what the Scriptures say about natural law or natural revelation. Uh, One place where this appears is in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Can you share with us how uh, uh, Herman Bavink understood uh, what was being addressed in that passage?
2: Well, uh, the first thing uh, we need to do In order properly to uh, employ that passage is we need to uh, be sure we cite it accurately and correctly. Many people when they hear Romans 2, 14 and 15 say things like, well the law is written on the heart. That's not what it says. Now that may be a conclusion we come to but that's not what the text says. The text says the works of the law or they show, verse 15, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Now, what this suggests is that um, the law being referred to in this context of Paul's argument is the Mosaic law, the Decalogue, not the natural law. If you look at Paul's argument here, it has to be that the Mosaic Law is written or the work of the Mosaic Law is written on the hearts of Gentiles who never received that law, which means, among other things, that that they apparently uh, externally, observably do things consonant with and according to that Mosaic Law. I'm thinking of the Ten Commandments in particular. The second conclusion from this passage is that God has written it in their hearts. That is, it's an activity of God. Of the law is something God does uh, that is the writing on their hearts of the work of the law is something that God does and um, again therefore the praise the credit belongs uh, to God and we must be careful then not to ascribe too much to uh, to unregenerate human beings with regard to their apprehension of the law so um, I guess, if I understand Bobbing correctly and others in the Reformed tradition um, of exegesis here, the particular, namely special revelation, serves to interpret the general, namely general revelation. And the scripture then becomes the key, the hermeneutical key, for understanding a right, for understanding a right, the natural law of God. Mm mm-hmm. Now, let me, let me be clear in terms of what I've been saying the last few moments. I'm not in any way um, denying that unbelievers uh, perform and render outward external conformity to the law of God. No, nobody that I know of in this discussion denies that. One would be, in my opinion, uh, ungrateful to deny that. However... The the words that we use must be chosen very carefully. When I say that unbelievers render outward, external conformity to the law of God, some people might sneer a little bit and say, well, what what more do you wish? And I would ask, well, what more does God want? Mm -hmm. And my answer to that is God wants, and for this purpose he gave his law, both in creation as well as in special revelation, God wants heart love, heart commitment, and heart fellowship. So when I say unbelievers lack the latter, I'm in no way diminishing the validity of the former, namely outward external conformity to the law of God. I thank God for that every day. It enables me to drive safely down the street. (laughs) It enables me to enjoy much of my life.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's really helpful on the natural law. Of course, the other half of this piece is focused on how Herman Bavink implemented, or how, I should say, how he understood this idea of two kingdoms. Um, And we do speak about the Church and the state. How did Bavink relate the two? What were his understandings about how the magistrate, the civil magistrate, should relate to uh, the Church?
2: Well, he, I think, very, very clearly taught that the magistrate has a God-given obligation to be a servant of Jesus Christ, and that is to say, he, he must be a servant of, of the Church, and he must advance, he must protect the uh, interests uh, of the Church. Um, I, I believe that uh, Bob Inc. recognizes the twofold kingship of Christ, but it was never in his theology uh, a warrant for independence between religion and cultural life including including politics. So I think there's far more integration in Bobbing's understanding of the two kingdoms, which he acknowledged to exist. There's far more integration, which is located and found, again, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, so that without embarrassment, he and his uh, student, Ink's students, can say that the state has the ability and the calling to work in service to the kingdom of God.
0: Mm, great. Well, one thing uh we've already mentioned, and now I want to hear what Bavink might say about this is how this all relates to Christology. Uh, we've talked about uh-huh. the magistrate and the and the church, but uh, how did Bavink relate God's works of creation uh and redemption in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, but the god man
2: well to uh <clears throat> I'd like to draw the listeners' uh, attention to uh, something involving Reformed dogmatics, mm-hmm. um, where he says, for example, in, in uh, Volume 4, page 437, he says something to the effect that um, that Christ functions not only in the Church, but also in the world as prophet, priest, and king. And that's uh, listeners will recognize that as a classic uh, Reformed description of Christ's office of mediator. And um, what this means is that uh, the Christian life, the Church's life, all of life as it goes out into the world, is a response to Christ's prophetic word, his priestly ministry, and his kingly rule. So that all of life for the Christian is Christ centered and Christ rooted and integrated in Christ. Now Christ also is prophet priest and king for the world that is for, for non-believers in this sense that he by right exercises authority through his word, in terms of his, um, in terms of his priestly office, praying for the world, um, ministering to the world, Etc. And is ruled his fight against sin. The medi- medi- mediatorial work of Christ, though specifically focused and given to the church, is not restricted to the church, but is performed in all of uh, history and in all of creation. Mm. And thereby, um, his work, Christ's work, is understood by Bavink as cosmic in scope. You probably have heard, your listeners probably have heard that phrase, grace restoring nature, which is to say, redemption is as wide as creation in terms of scope, in terms of intention and purpose, and in terms of consummation, frankly. Redemption will be as wide as creation.
4: So so how about um, Bovink then, as he begins to develop... Um, uh, life in the world, a doctrine of, I guess, ethics, right? Um, how is he connecting a Reformed biblical theology to a biblical, to a Christian worldview? Um, maybe you can flesh that out a little bit for us.
2: Well, a couple of uh, things that I think uh, come come to us through Bavink, Um <clears throat> I think they're very Calvinian in terms of notion, understanding, and concept. One is The Imitation of Christ. Um, Bob Ink's own, I believe it was his dissertation, was on The Imitation of Christ, Mm. and he never tired of calling his uh, readers and his listeners to that um, dimension of Christian living in the world, that we're called uh, to imitate Christ, not in the sense of duplicate his activities, he was unmarried, therefore we have to remain unmarried, that's sort of the uh, absurd analogy or example. But rather, as First Peter talks about it, when reviled, like Christ, we do not revile in return. That's one example. And that connection, um, related to the imitation of Christ, is the important notion of pilgrimage. For Lavin, for Calvin and others, pilgrimage is a modus vivendi, a way of living in the world. However, I want to emphasize at this point that for them, pilgrimage was a mode of cultural participation, not an alternative to cultural participation. In other words, look, I don't know when this will be broadcast, but we're in the neighborhood right now of a political election in America. And a lot of, a lot of Christians are asking, rightly so, how they ought to translate their Christian belief into political practice with the single gesture of pulling a lever. And uh, the, the question, it seems to me, or the, the approach of Bavink would not be whether to pull the lever, it would be with what spirit, with what attitude, with what hope, and with what conviction to pull the lever. Yeah. By which, and let me, let me explain that just a moment. That means that as we vote, we do so not, not in the hope that our vote and the vote of many who like agree with us will somehow redeem history or save America or uh, deliver us from the evil one. Jesus Christ and Jesus alone will do that. But rather, with our vote, we hope to, to serve that rule, that authority, that claim of Jesus Christ in our generation and upon our culture. That's what I think it means to be a pilgrim.
0: When we vote. Mm. That's really helpful. And that's, of course, one answer and one method for avoiding triumphalism, which is so often feared uh, um, from 2K uh, opponents, I believe. Well, this is really helpful to, to talk about Bovink. Of course, we don't want to stop entirely with Bovink, but uh, for the sake of time as well, we want to get enough attention and enough light shed upon this other figure that you've brought to the table in a very helpful way, and that is Simon Garrett de Graff. Uh, what you've done and what the listeners should know is that we have two translated articles in this book, Kingdoms Apart, uh, translated addresses that Dr. Klosterman has, has translated here, Christ and the Magistrate, and then another one called Church and State. Um, before we get into those actual uh, writings, uh, could you provide for us just a bit of uh, historical or biographical information on De Graaf?
2: Sure. Um, S.G. De Graaf, um, perhaps listeners will recognize the name associated with promise and deliverance, was a minister in the Netherlands during the 20th century. Um, he spent uh, most of his life serving uh, one congregation, I believe the one in Amsterdam. However, he, in the prime of his life, he was um, also a spokesman for the Dutch political party, reformed political party, known as the Anti-Revolutionary Party, which party was begun, founded by Abraham Kuyper. Now, the significance of de Graaf, and this is the reason I translated his essays, these two essays of his, is that he stood up prominently among his fellow believers and countrymen, during the time in the Netherlands when the National Socialist Movement, the Nazi movement, was gaining popularity and gaining ground, and along with that, the Christian democratic movement of pacifism was also gaining ground. And so de Graaf and others uh, faced a, a pastoral crisis as to how they were going to lead, advise, and encourage their parishioners in response to these phenomena. National Socialism, on the one hand, and the pacifism, on the other hand. What would be the particularly Christian posture in response to this? And so his speeches were delivered, his addresses were given, to various meetings of the anti-revolutionary party in uh, in the Netherlands during the mid-30s, when they could already hear the rumblings of the German tanks and hear the, uh, hear the propellers of the German Luftwaffe. On the horizon, so what they what he said and what he wrote during those days was not only politically significant but I think it was spiritually significant as well
0: and mm. there's so much going on there in the thirties in the Netherlands and uh it, it really is striking um and this is going to come uh, into into view as we unpack some of his views um just speaking first about the peace Christ as magistrate um one question I had right off the bat that, that was addressed is is the magistrate for de Graf subject to the triune God only or in some way is the magistrate also subject to Christ as the king who is crowned by God in redemptive history?
2: Well, that's I think uh, perhaps the most important question um relating to his first essay, namely as you put it, is the magistrate subject to the triune God or is he also subject to Christ? Uh, DeCraft's answer is he is also subject to Christ, and he introduces in this essay a rather interesting distinction, and uh, I think it's one that we should ponder a little bit. He distinguishes between Christ's eternal kingship and his temporal or temporary kingship. Now, we may not be given to these kinds of theological distinctions um, very easily in our generation, but just ponder a moment with me that when Christ said to his disciples in Matthew 28, a very favorite verse of most of us, I think, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, that suggests there was a time when this authority about which he is speaking was not yet in his hands. Moreover, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that Christ will one day turn over the authority or the kingdom to the Father. So that suggests in DeGraff's reading, then, that Christ has a kind of authority now that he would call, DeGraff would call, temporal authority, and it is that authority of Jesus Christ to which the magistrate is subject, and not Christ's eternal kingship, not to Christ, not to the second person of the Trinity as logos a Sarcos, mm-hmm. that is, the uh, pre-incarnate right. word, right. but that the magistrate is subject to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, mediator and Savior of the Church.
0: Well, that, that, that is a, an interesting suggestion and uh, something that uh, is definitely going to come to bear on how the magistrate would relate to the Church and to uh, the Church's spiritual aims. But one thing I really appreciated was the fact that he brought up a number of different biblical um, places, uh, teachings in Scripture. There's is First Timothy 2, 1 through 7, Psalm 2, the book of Revelation, and then Romans 13. What are what were some of the significances, or the, what is the significance of these particular passages that he mentioned?
2: Well, I think uh, the, the cumulative testimony of these passages is that um, magistrates, government officials, are, uh, are appointed by God, they are ordained by God, to govern and to rule and to use their power to serve God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not yet to require that um, magistrates be converted Christians such that only converted Christians can serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not true. Um, They can serve the Lord Jesus Christ by uh, enforcing order and by protecting the, uh, the society, the culture, the order of society for the sake of the church and granting tranquility for the sake of, of the gospel without themselves being, uh, you might say, subject to, uh, to the gospel. Otherwise, there might be people who conclude from what I'm saying or what DeGraff has said that only Christians then can be government officials, but, uh, but that's not true. As Psalm 2 indicates, it calls upon all kings to kiss the sun. All kings and magistrates to bow before the the, the the king appointed by God.
0: Oh, absolutely right. Well, you know, and then then related to that, and of course, how the magistrate relates to uh, the kingdom, specifically the, the spiritual kingdom of of uh, the Lord, um, is the second piece here, church and state. And and another thing that De does is he starts to unpack. Well, he, he compares the two and comes up with several similarities, but uh, uh, he also unpacks some of the differences. What are some of the similarities in De Graff's mind between the Church and the state?
2: Well, one of the first similarities uh, between Church and state involves uh, what he calls the law of God. And he would argue that the organizations of both Church and state are grounded in and governed by the law of God, which means neither— The state nor the Church arose by human invention, but that they arose by divine action and uh, and invention. It's very interesting uh, in the second place that um, he introduces a very helpful distinction between the communities of church and state and the organization of church and state. And I think he would argue and does argue that the communities, which are then, the, you might say, the heart, the kernel, the core of the organization, those will endure into eternity, whereas the organization of church and state, each, will fall away. And uh, so there's an eschatological note in this distinction. But he the similarity is that each church and state has uh, a community within that forms its life. As uh, it's essence, you might say. And the mm-hmm. third similarity is that Christ is King over Church and State, and He refers in this connection to His earlier address that we just discussed a moment ago. Wow.
4: Now, um, my question is about De Graf's, um a, a couple of t- two perspectives, I guess. I, I'm wondering how uh, how they affected His understanding of the relationship between church and state and the mediatorship of Christ with regard to both. The one is, um, what was McGrath's eschatological position or or position on eschatology, and did that have an effect um, on the way in which he understood Christ's reign with regard to church and state? And the second question is, um, how does establishmentarianism, European establishmentarianism, Um, uh, inform his uh, approach to also the reign of Christ over church and state?
2: Mm, mm. Well, those are (laughs) big big questions. Um, Regarding eschatology, as far as I can tell, um, DeGraf would be very, very sympathetic to what we in this country would call probably two-age eschatology. Mm -hmm. And uh, the kind of material that's been then has been taught and popularized by uh, Gerhardus Voss and uh, Dr. Richard Gaffin and others. I think he would be very sympathetic to that. He was, of course, by no means a dispensationalist, but (laughs) he was uh, very uh, comfortable talking about the continuity between um, the blessings of grace, the achievements of grace in in that we experience today, as part of the age to come, and they will continue in the in the world to come. In other words, he was a, he had a strong sense of continuity between um, what we as believers do and what the church, through the gospel and grace of Jesus Christ, do in the world and the the new heavens and the new earth. Mm. All right. Now, I, I what that means in terms of politics is. Um, Two things. First of all, I think he had a very modest understanding of the possibilities of politics. In other words, he did not look to politics to bring in the kingdom of God, to be identified with the kingdom of God, but did wish politics to serve the kingdom of God. The second thing, comment worth making, is that, uh, like the rest of human life and human activity, uh, sanctification. Uh, food grace, from the gospel, um, necessarily and inevitably goes beyond the individual Christian experience and the individual Christian activity to include um, public, communal, shared Christian activity in the culture and in the world. And this is a dimension, I think, that is being lost in the current discussion, namely, it's one thing to say, as our friends do say, who are defending two kingdoms, natural law today, that Christians must definitely, absolutely live as Christians in the world. And with that, none of us would disagree. But here's here's a point that needs to be pressed. What about the calling, not the option, the calling of Christians as a community of believers from Monday to Saturday to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling as well. That is the note that seems to be omitted and seems to be downplayed. So back to your question about eschatology and politics, I think that that uh, DeGrasse eschatology would lead him to urge uh, Christians together to labor productively in all these areas of life for the sake of and in service to the coming kingdom of God. Now, your second question had to do with establishmentarianism in European style and its impact on his understanding of the relationship between church and state. I think that by this time in history, in Dutch history, de Graaf and his compatriots were well aware of the disestablishment of the church, whether Roman Catholic or whether Reformed in the Netherlands, and participated in a political culture that was uh, by this time quite pluriform and coalition by nature. And they did not view the state as being the um, establisher of a church, one particular church, but rather the protector of uh, religious freedom and uh, the servant then of the truth. Uh, according to that was found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I happen to believe, and I think they did too, that people who serve the Lord Jesus Christ are um, in the world the most amenable and the most friendly to the claims and practices of non-Christian religion. I think that, given the teaching of the Bible, and given the example that we find in the Scriptures, um, It can be argued, it can be said, that the Christian faith is among the most, properly understood now, the most tolerant uh, of religions, politically speaking, toward those of other anti-Christian faiths. I think Graf would have agreed with that. So he was not an establishmentarian, in the sense that we might understand that in terms of history. Mm. But he was what I would call, others have used this term, it's not mine, a principled pluralist along these lines I hope I've answered your question
0: yeah I, th- I, th- I think you you hit all the all the main the main points and did so yeah. excellently um this has been thoroughly fascinating uh, we really do appreciate you know what you've opened up to us uh, from bovink and and de but um, uh, I I just want to Tell you thanks for for uh, for for your work, but I wanted to afford you any opportunity for any any concluding remarks or anything you'd like to say. Uh, you know, we we've asked a lot of questions, but did you have anything you'd like to address before before we let you go?
2: Well, I, I yes, I would. I would like to um, I would like to communicate to your listeners and to you fellows as well that mm-hmm. um, in the Lord's goodness, there is in our generation. Um, a renaissance going on within Neo-Calvinism that recognizes very clearly the defects that are being pointed to today as flaws and as failures of Neo-Calvinism. I would like to identify three. One is the view of Scripture. In North American Neo-Calvinism, which and this point deserves more underscoring than I can give it in these minutes... North American neo-Calvinism has not had the benefit of the refining essays, debates, and discussions in the 1930s and 40s, which occurred in the Netherlands, which remain in the Dutch language, and which remain inaccessible to students today of Kuyper and Bob Inc. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole corpus of, of stuff that needs to be translated from that era as well. But back to my point. Today there's a renaissance to neo-Calvinism with, in terms of a view of Scripture, a high view of Scripture, a confessional view of Scripture
1: defending,
2: defending uh, the infallibility of Scripture, as we have come to understand that through our decades of debate here in North America. I'm referring here principally to the work of the Pidea Center, associated with Redeemer Christian University in uh, Ancaster, Ontario, referring to the writings of people like Michael Goheen and uh, Craig Bartholomew and others. On the subject of Scripture, the second thing, uh, what is re- being rehabilitated in Neo-Calvinism today, is a high view of the Church. And for this, you know, I give our friends who are defending two kingdoms and natural law, I give them uh, credit that they have alerted us once more, very importantly, to the centrality of the institutional Church. I do not believe that you can go on my website, on my blog, and find a graph, a drawing that illustrates this. I do not believe the institutional Church is just one sphere alongside other spheres. I believe the institutional Church is heart and center of God's redemption and God's redemptive activity in all of life, so that the preaching, the means of grace that we experience every Lord's Day is fuel and is instruction and is encouragement and motivation for us in terms of the church as organism throughout the rest of the week. So we're seeing today a rehabilitation of worship, a rehabilitation of liturgy, and of preaching mm. among the old Calvinists. Thirdly, we are seeing a rehabilitation of holiness, godly living, as part and parcel of a cultural witness and cultural response to the gospel in every area of life. And I'm thankful for this renaissance i want people to see it to learn about it and to appreciate it and give thanks incidentally this renaissance of neo calvinism is being picked up and applauded to my surprise and to my gratification most particularly among many in the baptist churches hmm. in america there are those among southern baptists who are who have discovered that the christian faith has relevance all of life. And so they are picking up the books that we're translating by Kuyper, Bavink and others, and they're reading them with delight. And uh, I happen to be able to speak to a number of these groups doing conferences and uh, receiving their encouragements in my work as translator of Kuyper's Common Grace and Pro So I just want to share that with you. No,
0: I appreciate that. Thank you so much for uh, explaining that and, and uh, giving us an update and we delight in in new material coming to light uh seeing seeing these pieces by de graff available now here in this book Kingdoms Apart and we look forward to any more uh pieces that might come in the future how might um people out there that have the means or the desire how might they support uh, these types of translation efforts what are the things that people might be able to do uh to to uh help you along and help others along who might be able to translate these works
2: well um Uh, The first, and probably most important, is to pray for this work. Mm -hmm. I I understand, and I view this work, gentlemen, as the work of theological missionary to our contemporary culture, Mm. and I believe, therefore, that it is part and parcel with uh, seminary teaching, pastoral preaching, and writing of books. That's how highly I view this. So the prayers of God's people are needed for this work. Secondly. Purchase the works, use them as Christmas gifts, uh, whatever. Stock your library shelves in yeah. the church library or, or school library. And thirdly, of course, um, investigate through Christians Library Press and through Kuiper College opportunities for financial uh, underwriting of these uh, translation projects. Mm-hmm. There's never, um, uh, there's always need. Let me put it that way.
3: Always need for financial support of these
0: projects. Oh yeah. Now, Jeff, you've you've uh, been interested in this type of work for quite some time, haven't you?
3: Yes, I, I meant to uh, plug, well, since I can, I can do it, I guess, plug uh, uh, an 82-page uh, PDF that, that Dr. Klosterman uh, has uh, written originally as a series of articles. I believe it's on his uh, website. Uh, it's entitled Peering into a Lawyer's Brief. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll want to read that. That's an extended review. Of uh, Doctor Van Drunen's book, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms.
0: Yeah, it's and well worth. Both were well worth the read in, in the discussion. So we would encourage all uh, people to become informed there. And of course, uh, you know the articles here and chapters in this book, Kingdoms Apart, have a good number of footnotes. Uh, they're they're well documented, so you can follow along the discussion and uh, and read more about the theological issues from all sides. Uh, But, Dr. Klosterman, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a fascinating discussion, and and we really appreciate uh, your willingness to come on and share, especially with our listeners.
1: Well, thank you,
2: Camden, very much for your hospitality and for your kindness. I Mm -hmm. really enjoyed it.
0: Anytime. And, of course, we want to mention uh, to people and uh, point them back to uh, the many resources available from Dr. Klosterman online. Uh, You can find Worldview Resources International, Dot com and uh, there are many many different links on that website, but of course the blog uh, where you can get more uh, um, current and and uh, occasional writings here at Cosmic Eye c o s uh, m i c e y e dot wordpress dot com Cosmic Eye dot wordpress dot com uh, Jeff's available online in a number of different places as well, uh, most notably perhaps feeding on Christ dot com and uh, our new program East of Eden where he works alongside. Nick Batsig and Craig Beal and David Filson to talk about different aspects of the life and thought of Jonathan Edwards. You can find that online at reformedforum.org. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please email us there at mail at reformedforum.org. We want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.